pray and see how Paul finishes up uh, this most important theological treatise I think that's ever been written, quite frankly. I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. And, uh, and we'll begin. So let's pray together. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you, Lord. And there's just a sense of celebration, I know, in my heart, Lord, as we just journeyed for 17, 18 weeks together through this book, Lord. And we've covered every single word, Lord, because that's how much we respect and honor the fact that your Holy Spirit wrote this. So God, as we conclude, we pray that everything that you meant to be learned and said through this letter was learned. And God, that even if we can't articulate it, our hearts and our minds would know it very well because we know you. So as we conclude, Lord, we pray that we would know that you're happy, Lord. That we would know that you're pleased with the time that we spent in your word. So we celebrate you tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> okay. So as uh, we finished last chapter with Paul saying he plans to visit Rome, this is the only letter that he actually sent before he got there. So he's sending it ahead, and that's why I think we get such a great detailed description of the gospel from A to Z, like every doctrine is covered in this incredible letter, um, preparing Rome, the capital of the world in Paul's day, uh, preparing them for the reception of the gospel. So uh, he finishes by saying, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. <laughs> so, now uh, he's commending the servant of the church, and the word that the Bible uses for servants of the church very often is this Greek word diakonia, which is where we get our word deacon from, and with the women that are referred to as diakonia, we get our, our word deaconess from. So that's why Calvary Chapel is one of the churches that actually will have an office of deaconess. We have deacons and deaconesses serving at our church, and we see Phoebe as kind of the forerunner of that office, uh, as we see here. And the other thing I wanted to point out with this is this. Her name is Phoebe, which um, she's named after a, a pagan goddess, and she doesn't change her name when she changes her faith. And what I want to say, what I think is important about this is I try to understand when people have scruples about um, things that were once pagan and now seem to be in the Christian camp, like Christmas, like Easter. You know, Christmas was after a... Uh, December 25th was in honor of a, of a pagan god, Mithras, Easter is actually named after Ishtar, and people avoid those holidays uh, for those reasons. Yet, what Christianity has done is reclaimed that territory for Christ, and that's why I want to encourage people to celebrate those, those holidays, because Jesus said that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Gates are what you put to protect property, Right? So Jesus says there's gates of hell on the earth protecting their territory, their, 
their area. And we know Halloween is pretty much a holiday dedicated to darkness and, and things like that and death. And yet Halloween is German for Holy Eve. That was once a celebrated Holy Eve because November 1st is All Saints Day. So as the church celebrated the saints of the church on November 1st, the night before that was Holy Eve. It's still named that. It's still named Holy Eve, Halloween. Yet the world took that for their purposes. Okay? So at my house, we've taken it back for the church's purposes. So every kid that comes to us walks away with literature about what our church is doing for, for kids. So where we would love to go out into the neighborhood and pass out that literature, there's one day a year that Satan brings them to us, right? <laughs> Satan says, I'm going to have all the kids come to your house and learn about the church. And then by the end of the night, he's going, what the heck did I just do here? Right? Because the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. So how can the gates of hell prevail at all? Well, if the church doesn't do anything about the gates of hell. So the church ought to be doing things about it. So if something was for Ishtar, let's make it Christmas, or let's make it Easter. If something was for Mithras, let's make it Christmas, and let's celebrate Jesus through each and every thing that we can. And people that hesitate with that, I just want to remind them that Sunday is named for the God of the sun. Monday is for the God of the moon. Tuesday is for a God named Tears that um, in Roman mythology has become Mars, and that's Tuesday. Wednesday is a God uh, named Wadden. Thursday is Thor. Friday is, um, did I not write Friday down? I did write Friday down somewhere. Friday is a, a God, uh, Fringe and Venus together is how they've got Friday. And Saturday is for Saturn. So your entire week is filled with it. Yet, you're not supposed to stay in your house seven days a week and avoid the days because they're named after these pagan gods, but rather you're to be given the good news of Jesus Christ on those days, correct? So um, you're on the winning team, and the only way a winning team can't win is if it forfeits, right? just doesn't show up. So Phoebe doesn't change your name. And now her pagan name is in our holy Bible as the leader of the deaconesses of the world. Okay, that to me is redemption. This is what redemption looks like. Redeem these things for Jesus Christ. All right, so verse three, <coughs> excuse me. Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Now, Priscilla and Aquila, we read about in Acts chapter 18. And in Acts chapter 18, we read this about them. It says, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. So he's going to this crazy, sinful city of Corinth. And there it says, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So, we don't know exactly how Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks for Paul, but we do know where they met Paul in Corinth. We do know that Claudius had a, an edict to go after Christians, and we know Paul was the biggest rabble-rouser of all of the Christians. So it's safe to assume that Priscilla and Aquila housed Paul, 
knowing that they could be uh, killed by their government for doing that. So it looks like Priscilla and Aquila are down in history is extremely bold in taking care of the Apostle Paul as the Apostle Paul is getting these letters out to the world. So very, very important contribution uh, that they had. Um, continuing verse 5, says, Greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia to Christ. What an honor to be called the first fruits of a, a region. What an honor. Um, and it's also said of St uh, Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, it calls him also the first fruits of Achaia. It says, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia. So it mentions the household of Stephanus as the first fruits of Achaia, and it also mentions here, <coughs> excuse me, it also mentions here um, Epineatus as the first fruits of Achaia. And people say, well, how can they both be first fruits? Well, uh, first fruits is a crop. You know, it's the first uh, of a harvest. So they are the first harvest that Achaia had experienced. Uh, Stephanus and Epineatus are a part of that. Uh, verse 6, greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who are also were in Christ before me. So Paul gives special honor and special recognition to those who caught on to who Jesus was earlier um, there. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Now, I was rehearsing the pronunciation of these names earlier. Then I thought, I'm just going to count on the fact that no matter how I say them, you guys won't know better. <laughs> All right, that's what I'm kind of really banking on, on that. <clears throat> Verse 12 says, Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. So here's three names now in a row that are more women. Isn't that glorious? There's so many women that Paul is just bringing attention to their contributions uh, in the gospel. And remember, this is before the gospel uh, was safe at all for them. This is before the gospel was throughout the world. And we see these major, major contributions of women throughout. Three in a row right there. Thirteen, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Now, this is a fascinating man, Rufus. If you join me in um, Mark chapter 15, we're going to see Rufus there, starting in verse 21. This is when Jesus is carrying his cross beam upon his shoulders after his 39 lashes, after some of the centurion have beat him up a bit, and he's carrying his cross beam, and he collapses, and they pull Simon the Serene from the crowd to carry his cross beam. This is what it sounds like, Mark 15, 21. It says, then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So if you can imagine this young boy, maybe teenager, maybe younger, standing there watching the scene of this man being crucified, his father explaining to him the claim of that man. And the story of that man. And Rufus is watching all this. Then his father snatched away from him. And the, the beam of the cross is put on their father's shoulders. And he carries it the rest of the way for Christ. 
that'd be a pretty impactful day for a young boy to see. Well, that young boy now is hanging out with the Apostle Paul and, and, and receiving thanks from the Apostle Paul. Um, and Mark's gospel, his intended audience is the Romans. Same audience Paul's writing to here. So we can kind of see the connection as Mark's sending his gospel to the Romans. And he, he actually he doesn't just mention Simon the Cyrenian. He says, by the way, his sons are Alexander and Rufus. Probably having in mind that Alexander and Rufus, or at least Rufus, is in Rome where Paul's letter is now going. Isn't that amazing? Verse 14. Greet and Syncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerusus and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. <coughs> now, this greeting with the holy kiss was very common in the early church, and it was especially and particularly practiced after they shared communion together. So, uh, we should talk to our pastors about that. Um, they would greet with a holy kiss, remember, a holy kiss. So um, it was very common for them after partaking of the Lord's body and blood that they would greet each other with a holy kiss. And that's what Paul's encouraging here as well. Uh, verse 17, now a bit a change of tone as Paul gives his very last admonitions to the Romans before he closes out the letter. He says, now I urge you, brethren... Note those that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Now, he's saying to avoid heresies here, not to avoid doctrine. I know people who say doctrine divides. We shouldn't get tied up in doctrine and things like that. Well, guess what? That's their doctrine. You can't avoid doctrine. Any belief you have is a doctrine. So doctrine doesn't divide. Doctrine does the exact opposite. Doctrine keeps us from straying from truth. So we get true doctrine and we know that whatever we read from the scriptures, if it doesn't match the doctrine, we need to read again. We need to make sure we stay in bounds. That's how the truth stays intact over many, many centuries. Doctrine is what uh, keeps us there. So here he's warning against those who are contrary to the doctrine which they learned. So he's elevating doctrine. He's not saying doctrine divides. He's saying doctrine is the glue that keeps us together. So therefore, you got to watch those who actually pick apart at doctrine and give you stuff contrary to doctrine and to avoid them. He says, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, by, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. So the people that you're to watch out for are the people, according to this, that are feeding their own belly. In other words, they're the, the person that's served the most by their preaching is themselves. So their ministry is serving them and their well-being and their name and reputation more than it's serving Jesus Christ. So that's a benchmark for understanding who to avoid. Uh, Paul tells you to avoid people like that. So, uh, I stay mindful of Jesus' words that, or I'm sorry, John the Baptist's words, that he must increase and we must decrease, okay? So, hopefully when you leave here each Wednesday, your hearts were filled with Jesus, that Jesus was 
uh, the reason why you keep coming back and coming back. And I believe that with all my heart because I wouldn't come for me, and I have no idea why you would come for me. So it's, it's got to be uh, Jesus. He says, for your obedience. Now, you know I harp on that word every time it comes up. To me, this is where the rubber of the faith meets the road of reality. It's through obedience. Um, I believe I brought it up last week, but um, I, I like to listen to Dr. Uh, Jordan Peterson because he wrestles with faith. He wrestles with faith, and yet he's very, very sincere in that wrestling. And one of those sincerities is he says, how could anybody ever say they believe in God? Because God is maximally truthful, and God is maximally um, excellent. And, and so if you say you believe, then you follow, and you obey, and you live a life that's maximally truthful and maximally obedient and so forth. So he understands the concepts, but he doesn't understand the grace that comes with it, that when you fail. And so he's like horrified at the implications of following somebody like Jesus, because he understands that no greater life has ever been lived than Jesus Christ. He's very clear on that. He actually has dreams of kings rising from their graves, great kings of the past rising from their graves. And because they're warrior kings in his dream, they start fighting each other. And he realizes in his dream that the problem with these warrior kings is that they have no king to follow themselves. But then he has a vision of Christ. And he says, and all the kings stopped fighting and they bowed to Jesus. What a dream, right? The king of kings. So I think Jordan Peterson is really on a journey to incredible faith. Um, but he understands that you just don't say you believe. If you say you believe, you're making a statement about your obedience to what you believe. That there's no sense in saying you believe something if you're not faithful and obedient to that thing that you say you believe in. So he understands that the only true believing is in following and obeying. That's why Jesus will say... If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Or he'll say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you're not doing what I say? The authenticity of our faith comes in our obedience. So as Paul warns against people that give false or contrary doctrine, he says uh, to avoid them, and he says it's for your obedience has become known to all. So as they filter out the false doctrine and take in the pure it results in their obedience that gives them the testimony that witnesses to other people. <clears throat> he says, therefore, I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. Wise in what is good, simple concerning evil. This is the division between the milk of the word and the meat of the word that we see Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 3. When he urges the Corinthian church, he'll say, And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. So he's saying, if, if you're just getting the milk of the word, the easily digestible stuff, this is stuff that doesn't grow you. This is stuff that doesn't mature you. This is stuff that keeps you in a loop of immaturity in the faith. And Paul says, you've got to start biting into meat here. You've got to start chewing on things that allow you to grow. He, the writer of Hebrews says the same thing in chapter 5. 
He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. By reason of use, that's another word for obedience, that you use your faith, you're stepping out in your faith, you're proclaiming your faith, you're using this faith um, that you're in here, gets you to the meat and the growth and the nutrition of that. (coughs) All right, 20, and the God of peace, I love how Paul does this, the God of peace, so you got that picture of peace in your mind? He says, here is what the God of peace will do. He'll crush Satan under your feet shortly. I love that. Okay, imagine the God that Moses talks about where he says, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Imagine what that God can do when he's the God of peace that actually crushes Satan under our feet. And Paul says he will do that shortly. He will do that shortly, meaning soon. This is why I, along with many others, believe Paul is very aware of the event that's about to happen about 13 years after he wrote this, which is the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, that when the temple is destroyed and Judaism is effectively ended, the sacrificial system is ended and all of that, um, that that might be what uh, the crushing of Satan under their feet actually was. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Now, if there's one person that amen doesn't necessarily mean the end yet, it's Paul. And so here we continue. He says, uh, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sesopater, my my countrymen, greet you. You guys don't need baby books, by the way. You've got Romans 16 for your children's names, right? (laughs) Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, what? So, so Tertius wrote this. You ready? He wrote this. Tertius wrote Romans 1.1. 1, 1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Tertius wrote, hey, this is Paul writing to, the, to Romans. So what is this all about? Well, very often in Paul's day and in the Old Testament days, um, writers of the Bible would use what's called an amanuensis. An amanuensis was a scribe. It was somebody that you brought on to write as you spoke. So um, this is the only book we actually see the amanuensis speak up. And as he's writing all these greetings down from Paul, he just can't help himself. He says, hey, I want to say hello too, okay? Um, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Now, there's good reason why <clears throat> Paul would use an amanuensis. And it has to do what I believe has to do with that thorn in the flesh that he talks about. I believe his thorn in the flesh had to deal with uh, what is very obvious throughout Paul's letters, especially his letter to the Galatians, that he struggled with his eyesight. We know he was blinded by a supernatural light when Christ appeared to him. We know he went blind for three days. um, And we don't know that he was ever fully healed because he'll say to the Galatians, 
in chapter 4. Um, let me see what verse it is. I lost my spot. Second. Romans 4.15, he'll say, I'm sorry? Galatians 4.15. Did I say Romans? Okay, Galatians 4.15. Uh, he'll say, what then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, why would anybody say, here's how much I know you love me. You would pluck out your own eyes and give them to me if you could. Now, I've read a lot of Valentine's card. I've never read one like that, right? Okay. So Paul obviously is struggling with his eyes and he's saying, I know your love and affection for me would lead you to even pluck out your own eyes and give them to me if you could. And then in Galatians 6.11, he says, see what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. So now he's saying, I'm not using amanuensis. I'm telling you, I'm writing this with my own hand and here's my proof. Look at the large letters that I'm using. Why does somebody write with large letters? Because they can't see very well. Just like people that can't hear very well speak louder, right? So he's writing with very large letters so he could see what he's writing. So when he's emphatic about something and he grabs the quill from an amanuensis, he says, I'm writing this with my own hand. You want proof? Look at the large letters that I'm using. But uh, in a very cool way, uh, Tertius speaks up in verse 22 and shares in the greetings uh, with others. The only other time we see something like this, we actually see it in the Old Testament with uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're introduced to his scribe. His name is Baruch. And he writes uh, the letter we know as Jeremiah today. <clears throat> Verse 23. Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. So now we even see some of the nobility coming to the faith. We have the treasurer of the city coming to faith. And we've seen higher-ups coming to the faith in Acts chapter 6. And I really, really uh, love this. In verse 7, as early as Acts chapter 6, we read this in verse 7. It says, And the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Isn't that great? As early as Acts chapter 6, these Jewish priests are becoming, a great many is, is how it's described, are coming to the faith. What a job these apostles are doing, huh? Many convincing proofs were told that they had. Um, verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Certainly, if he says amen twice, he must be done, right? No. We continue. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Third time's a charm, right? Amen. Now, the word Paul uses when he says establish, to establish you according to my gospel, is the word that we get edify from, which is the word we get edifice from, which is a foundation for a building. And so he's 
So um, Paul's talking about he, uh, Jesus is able to, to be your foundation. He establishes you by becoming your, your foundation in the gospel through the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, we know what Paul has taught earlier about these foundations. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, if your foundation is Christ and the rest of what he says, he's saying you're going to heaven one day. That's it. You're going to heaven. If your foundation of your life is Jesus Christ, meaning everything you build your life upon is founded upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Everything that follows, the things that you say, the things that you do, the way that you act, okay, the way that you care for people, why do you live that life? The answer is I have a foundation and, and it's Jesus Christ and I build upon that foundation. Okay, so in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says you should be building with gold, silver, precious stones, these, these great acts of love and, and, and things that are of great worth in God's sight and there's reward for building on your foundation with those things. So Paul's saying in this benediction in verse 25 that Jesus is able to establish you to become your edifice, your foundation in the gospel, okay? Every time somebody says to you why this or that, your answer should come from this foundation of Jesus Christ. He's the reason why you're doing the things you're doing and saying the things you're saying, behaving the way you're behaving, treating people the way that you're treating them. It's all based on this foundation that you're building upon. If you're trying to build a house on a foundation, what a waste to use the materials somewhere else that's not on the foundation. And what else does Jesus teach about this foundation? He teaches that some build on rock and some build on sand, right? And you guys know the story. If you build on the sand, these trials that come in your life, you're going to see your foundation collapse. You build on the rock, you're going to see it stand through all of your trials and so forth, okay? Now, I'm especially saying this for the simple reason. 10 o'clock this morning, I was at a memorial service for a three-year-old. That is not an easy thing at all. The mother was my student way back in my Coral Springs Christian days in the late 90s. And um, she lost her three-year-old child to a disease. He had a mass, I don't know where, from birth on. What a remarkable life that three-year-old lived because many surgeries. They talked about all the needle surgeries. He had to wear a halo for traction all the time, all these things. And we watched a 45-minute video of that boy's life to start the memorial service. And I don't think I've smiled as much in 54 years as he smiled in three years. He's filled with laughter. Um, his most common words were, I love you. Um, he always wanted to kiss his family um, and be kissed by his family. It's just he was just somebody God sent to remind us how we're supposed to be. He's just like this boy that lived a life to reset us and remind us of what's truly valuable and stop chasing after the wind like we're so tempted to do all the time. And so um, we've, I watched his parents speak at this thing. I watched his five other siblings or maybe even six other siblings speak about this little boy through many, many, many tears. Yet, um, you could see this as a family who built their foundation on the rock. Because you want to talk about a trial, every one of you knows that's a massive trial this family's going through right now. But they're standing and they're praising God through this trial. Um, little kids to mom and dad, all praising God through this trial, thanking God that they got to be the parents for the, the three years, not wishing that he was somebody else's issue, 
but thanking God that we got to be this boy's parents for three years, even though it ends in all of this pain. That's a house that's built on rock. That's a house that's firmly established um, on a foundation that can't be shaken. Um, it was remarkable to see. It was truly remarkable to see. We've got to build on foundation, the foundation of Jesus Christ. It's all the difference in the world. It's all the difference in the world. Um, and uh, Paul continues and says, uh, he talks about the mystery kept secret since the world began. When I pull up how Paul uses this word mystery, it seems to always be pointing to the gospel going to the Gentiles. So um, I believe that's what he's talking about with this mystery kept secret. But now made manifest as he's reaching out to the Gentiles. He's showing this is now manifested. And uh, by the prophetic scriptures, so he's acknowledging these scriptures as being uh, prophetic in nature, uh, the only faith in the world that dares to tell the future and nails it 100% of the time perfectly right. Uh, to all nations, he says, which of course in his day was shocking. Paul, growing up Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, would have been completely unanticipated by him that this gospel's to all nations. And I'm sure he never would have guessed he'd be the apostle to all these nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God. So God has commanded this gospel to get out to us Gentiles. For what reason again? Obedience to the faith. The whole purpose of it all is our obedience to this faith. And then he says all of that is to God, who alone is wise. He says, to this God be glory through his son Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Now this idea of all glory going to God through Jesus Christ. This gives us our Latin term that we like to use in, in uh, Protestant circles, uh, sola gloria, for the sola de gloria, for the glory of God alone. Um, everything we do is for the glory of God alone. And Paul finishes the most marvelous letter ever written about Jesus Christ, ever written about Jesus Christ. In fact, you can only write about Jesus Christ now based on what Paul has written about Jesus Christ. You can't come up with something new, okay? It's got to be established through uh, the Gospels and Paul's letters. And so through all of his writing and all that he's established, he finishes by saying, glory to God alone. God is the only one worthy of constant glory. It doesn't exhaust him. It doesn't uh, it's not overkill when our entire life uh, and the entire lives of the entire population are constantly glorifying him. It's not too much. He's actually worthy of all of that. Just like you might be worthy of a birthday song once a year, right? Where everybody's singing to you and nobody goes, I can't believe you let them sing to you. That's so arrogant. No, you're worthy of that. You can have that. But the whole world singing every day to Jesus Christ about everything, he's worthy of that. It's not overkill for him. And Paul finishes this most marvelous letter, bringing glory to God through Jesus Christ forever. And it took him three tries, but finally he finishes on. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we celebrate, Lord, the completion of this book. Lord, we know we count ourselves privileged, Lord, to having the heart, Lord, to look at every word of this incredible letter. So now we ask, Lord, that you would complete and piece together everything we've heard, everything we've studied, 
everything we've read, that our hearts, Lord, may be filled and complete and whole on you, your son, Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And we all said, amen, amen. amen.